before we get today's episode started, I wanted to tell you guys about an exciting new project that I'm working on. It's called Recovery Revolution Podcast Network. And what that is, is it's a group of people that are working to connect you with the best recovery content possible. It is a collection of different recovery podcasts and resources, and we're all working together to promote each other's shows and, and help you guys get different perspectives on recovery. we got a lot of great shows like Chasing Heroin, The Drunken Worm Podcast, Recovery Soul Food, The One Day at a Time Podcast, The Way Out Podcast, just a bunch of great content that we're all working together now to help each other grow and promote the message of recovery and let people know that it's possible and that there's more to life than just putting down the drugs or the alcohol. So if you guys want more information about that, please check out the links in the show notes. We have a website up as well as a couple of social media profiles. Hi, I'm Charlie with the Way Out Podcast, an ad-free weekly sobriety and recovery podcast where we share powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics to jumpstart or re-energize your recovery. Check out the Way Out Podcast hosted by yours truly and our amazing co-host Jason by going to wayoutcast.com and clicking on episodes or look us up on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Let's smash stigma, get well, and recover out loud together. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. 18 years ago being homeless and now I'm Dr. Davis. If I can do it from all the stuff that I went through uh, and experienced and, and hardships and uh, you know, bouncing around the country and if I can do it, anybody can if they choose to to work on how they think, how they feel, right? My guest today is named Dr. Chad Davis. He is the author of The 12 Steps 2.0, Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, about the very outdated and curable disease model. Welcome to the show, Dr. Davis. I am Chad Davis, Dr. Davis with ABD in a uh, psychology, health and wellness, uh, doctorate in uh, health and wellness. I've been running around on this planet for 50 years. I've spent the last 14 years doing dual diagnosis, which is um, both addiction and mental health. I'm not exactly sure why they split it because it's all in the same book, but uh, they do nonetheless. Um, Before that, uh, I had an entire a plethora of jobs. I have a a resume uh, 12 pages long, everything from selling Kirby vacuum cleaners for four days, uh, dealing blackjack, concierge, everything in the bar industry, jack of all trades. um, And uh, I always in some some form of fitness, fitness director, personal trainer, uh, gym sales, juice bar, whatever. The irony is, is I was getting out of fitness because uh, I'd been a personal trainer for about 20 years. And um, I was I was letting one of the ladies know, I was like, hey, I'm going to be passing you off to another trainer. 
because I'm getting out of out of this. And she's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I was like, I still want to help people, but I don't want to do it in this setting anymore. So the irony is, is I was leaving fitness because I was getting bored with it. And I still use fitness and nutrition every day <laughs> and, and mental health. But um, she's actually the one that opened the door into what I'm doing now. Uh, they owned a, she was the wife of a doctor that owned a, a mat facility, right? Where they use Suboxone for uh, recovery. And I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing that I started in mat, but that is where I started. And uh, she told me, she's like, come in, you know, check it out. Um, I knew nothing about the 12 steps at the time. I knew nothing about a process of recovery. My entire life itself is, uh, I'll jump into that in just a second, but um, I struggled with lots of stuff myself, but never used anything structured to uh, to get anywhere. So I was totally oblivious to it, but fell in love with it um, day one. And I quickly learned that this was something that I I wouldn't get bored with, right? That's one of the reasons I would, I, I bounced around from everything because I'm like, oh, I've never done this. And then in just a few months, I figured out how to do it and the ins and outs of it. And I'd start getting bored and I'd move on to something else. And I was like, so in psychology and addiction specifically, you have the puzzle of addiction. And then you have the puzzle of the person within the puzzle. And I was like, even if I figure it out, there's 25 million others. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, so I'm like, yes, I finally found my niche, right? And then as far as like my, the professional side of things goes, uh, I started with a, just getting certified in, in addiction, uh, counseling. Um, and the biggest thing I learned in that was I needed to know a lot more about psychology. So I went straight from my addiction certification at ICDC college to my bachelor's of psychology, straight from my bachelor's to my master's of psychology and straight from my master's to my current PsyD in psychology. The irony is, is the more I actually understood like why people do what they do, there is a real true aspect of like, where's the surprise? Like when you understand how the mind works, when you understand what conditioning and behaviorism and like all of the components that influence why people do what they do, when you look at people in addiction or depression or anxiety or anything else, like it's, it's a duh factor. It's like, okay, well, these things happened in their life and this is how they're reacting to that where's the surprise? Like, why is this a big thing? <laughs> Which is what led to my, uh, the, the book in, in one general idea. Um, but to back up just a little more, uh, because everybody always wants to know, um, like why, why do I care? How do I know? Like whatever, whatever. So my, my life resume, very short. Cause like I said, it is 50 years. Um, I came up kind of like a lot of the people in the rooms when you, when you hear their stories, you're like, wow, like that's a crazy story, but it's really not that uncommon. Um, I've had four different fathers. Um, one was my first one was uh, sexually abusive. My second one was uh, an alcoholic. My third one wasn't much of anything. Um, my fourth, although we get along great now, uh, is one of the reasons I left home when I was 16. I've literally lived coast to coast from West Palm Beach, Florida to San Diego, California, more than 70 street addresses in between. And that does not include the five different times I was homeless, not due to amazing life choices. 
and the times where I was just crashing on somebody's couch or in, in somebody's back room or, or whatever. So, um, I tell people this, that I work with to, to hopefully instill some hope. Cause like 18 years ago, uh, was the last time I was homeless. So 18 years ago being homeless and now I'm ABD, Dr. Davis. Right. And that's like, if I can do it from all the stuff that I went through, uh, and experienced and, and hardships and, uh, you know, bouncing around the country and, um, we can get into to how my youth was, whatever, but like, if I can do it, anybody can, if they choose to, to work on how they think, how they feel. Right. So that's kind of the seeds for, uh, where I am and today, the book itself came about in two parts. One was it initially, and I, I think I even, I put it in the front of the book. Like the book initially was just like a, meh, I told you so <laughs> to an old gray beard in, uh, that I used to work with. Cause I don't know what everybody's experience is in the recovery field, but in East Tennessee, which is the buckle of the Bible belt, it is 12 steps, period. Anything else is heresy. Anything else is you're an idiot. Like don't even, don't even talk about it. Think about it. Right. Like it is 12 steps recovery or nothing. The issue I had was everything that I was reading in school had nothing to do with that, right? Like the, the stuff that I'm reading in textbooks is like, there is no one way. Like that's chapter one, paragraph one, page one. There is no one way. And I'm like, that's not what I'm being told. So there was a lot of contradiction within the community itself, right? Like some doctors didn't quite agree with what other doctors said. Some of the therapists didn't quite agree with the, some of the other therapists, and then what I was learning in school definitely did not agree with what everybody, all the prof quote unquote professionals around me that are supposed to know what they're talking about were advocating. And me being me, that just led me to dive deeper and, and learn more and more and more. Like, uh, for example, one of my early questions was like, so, okay, so what is addiction? And everybody would always tell me, well, addiction is a hijacking of your dopamine reward system. And I'd be like, okay, so why is that important? What does that mean? And no one could really go past that because all they were doing was regurgitating something that someone else had told them, but they didn't understand the whys. They didn't understand the hows. They didn't understand the significance in neuroscience to like, what does that mean? And, and is that a lifelong thing? And is that actually a disease and like, whatever, right? Like they could only answer surface questions. So on top of psychology in school, I started digging into neuroscience, right? Like I wanted to know, like the only thing that everybody agreed on was that addiction was a brain issue, whether it's a disease or not, it was still a brain issue. So I needed to understand the brain. Like if I really want to help people, then I need to understand the whys and hows of what's actually going on in the brain. So I started digging into that and got into the fields of psychoneuroimmunology, neuropsychology, uh, biological psychology, and I was learning things like epigenetics, neuroplasticity, right? Like the very first time I learned the term neuroplasticity, I was super excited. 
I'd never heard of the term before. I was actually digging into it because my uh, my stepfather's paralyzed, and part of neuroplasticity is the idea that people even that are paralyzed can retrain the brain, right? So I was digging into that side of the science. So I was super excited to talk to the the professionals that I worked with the next day and see what they thought about this amazing new idea, because it's um, pretty much negates the whole disease model idea, right? So I go in, I'm super stoked and I'm like, Hey, you know, what do you think about uh, neuroplasticity? And they're like, neuro what? I'm like, neuroplasticity. Like, what, what do you think of that concept? Like, and how does that, like how it applies to the disease model? Like, what do you think about all this? Most of them had never even heard of the idea. One of the doctors had heard of neuroplasticity, but was like, well, that's a great concept, but that's not reality. And I'm like, it's not a concept. It's a field of science. It's been around for 20 years, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, how come, like, you're supposed to be, like, in my eyes, right? Like, they were supposed to be the professionals of this. And I'm like, you've never even heard of a term that literally changes the foundation of the understanding of addiction? So I, I quit listening to what other people said and basically just started at ground zero for myself and was like, okay, so I need to learn this from the ground up, not from opinions, not from personal experiences, but what does the science, what does the research say? And that's what I started bringing to my patients. So the second facet of what drove this book was I'd be talking about neuroplasticity. I'd be talking about epigenetics. I'd be talking about psychoneuroimmunology and explaining these things to my patients and in groups and stuff. And they're like, why have I never heard any of this? I've been through seven rehabs. I've been in the prison system for 20 years. I teach these courses. How come I've never heard this, right? Like that was something that has been echoed even still today. When I talk to people, they're like, man, this is great. But like, how come I've never heard this? So the fuel of I told you so. <laughs> and the the desire to truly um, at least present the information in one short, organized, as concise as I can make it location, right? Like here's here's all the information that I know that can help people in the 12 steps because the 12 steps is still like the largest recovery program around the world. And like it was part of my uh, dissertation was to create something that could actually help people in recovery. Because the, the issue is, is like when I started this, I'm like, I'm going to fix addiction. Like people just don't understand, right? Like this is a no brainer when you understand psychology. So like, I'm just going to, I'm going to fix addiction. That was, <laughs> that's how little I knew about the systems back then. But Every paper that I wrote, and I've literally written over a hundred papers on addiction and recovery, I had tons of resources. I, I was never lacking references. I'm like, okay, so I'm not fixing anything. People have known that things are screwed up in the, the world of recovery for decades. Right? Like some of the stuff that I talk about to, to patients and stuff, I'm like, I'll tell them that I'm like, well, when did they learn this? And I'm like, oh, you know, about 30 years ago. 30 years ago, this was in research. 
And they're like, how come, like, why is it still the way it is? And then like, it kind of evolved. Like in my bachelor's program, I was learning the concepts and constructs, the, the hows and the whys. The master's program, I spent the majority of my time digging into, okay, well, if we know all this stuff, why isn't it changing, right? Like the textbooks will say the difference between like what we know in research and what is applied in clinical settings is immense. Like they know there's a massive evidence-based research gap. I'm like, okay, so if we know there's this gap, my doctoral, every one of my doctoral papers was, well, how do we implement a change? And the issue that I found was basically to make a change in today's world, in my current understanding, the medical profession, the mental health profession, the legal profession, education, insurance, and big pharma would all have to be on the same page. And in my opinion, they are, <laughs> but they're on the page of profit margins, not success in application. Because like I said, none of this is new. Like all, all the stuff in the book, all the stuff that I talk about, all the stuff that, you know, literally, you know, the, the hundred plus papers that I wrote, some of my, some of my papers had 75, 100 or plus references to them. So it's all research that shows the stuff that I was talking about, that there's holes in this, that there's gaps in this, that this isn't being applied, that we know this, but we're still using ancient stuff. So I put everything together in a, like I literally made the book a, a workbook size so people can make notes, can highlight stuff, whatever. Um, and I made it as concise as possible. Each chapter in the book could be a book in and of itself to actually learn all of the psychology, all the neurology, all the neuroscience and stuff that's behind each one of those concepts. But I tried to keep it as short and blatantly straightforward as possible. Um, so people could read it and at least have the information to make a more educated choice in their life. Because my goal, right, was my ultimate goal is I just want people to live a, a happier, fuller life, whether you're in recovery or not, right? Like I think most people are but a mere shadow of who they could be. They have dreams, they have ambitions, or they had dreams and they had ambitions or whatever. And like we, we spend the majority of our time on our phone. We spend the majority of our time on social media and we don't really, as he says in Braveheart, right? Like every man dies, not every man really lives. I like really feel that in, especially in today's society, the more and more virtual we get. I mean, if people can go into the metaverse and sit around in virtual reality, watching Netflix with other people in virtual reality, we have a social problem, <laughs> right? Like this isn't just mental health. This is a social construct problem, but it's a whole different soapbox. So anyway, my, my goal is simply to help people change. And one of the things, right? Like my, my, uh, dissertation is based off of the theory of motivation, right? Like the expectancy theory of motivation. There we go. How that would play into the 12 steps, 
right? The, that, that construct, because I had to pick something, one thing t- to, to work with. So the expectancy theory of motivation basically breaks down into three columns. Is something possible? Is it possible for me? Is it worth my time and effort? Right? That's one of the main drivers of motivation. There's other theories of motivation and there's other constructs, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're homeless and starving, like the motivation to achieve those basic needs is going to be higher than your motivation to finish your degree or to go to work or whatever, right? Like, so there are other aspects of motivation, but just on a general basis, the expectancy theory of motivation is, is very accurate in, in predicting someone's behavior. The issue in research and my opinion was if you're told that day one, that recovery isn't possible. If you're told that no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to recover. That is one and two of the expectancy theory of motivation. Is it possible? No. Is it possible for you? No. Is it worth your time and effort? No. So where is the surprise that people aren't just jacked to recover? Well, if you're told that no matter what you do, you're not going to recover, like, again, on the psychology side of things, like there's, it's not really a, a major surprise that more people aren't doing more things. That, that was always one of my questions in group was like, I'm like, until you've recovered, like, why aren't you doing everything you can every day to get the hell out of here? I didn't get it. But on the flip side of that, I didn't believe what everybody had already been taught because I knew it was possible because that was like, that was my major thing is because in the very beginning, before I knew all of this, waking up, being homeless, all of this stuff that was in my mind about, you know, um, my, my past life, my abuse, all of the quote unquote trauma and stuff that I went through. I'm like, I overcame this with no professional help. So you can't sit there and say that this is impossible to do because I've done it. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) Right. Like, and the, the irony or the interesting part of whatever you want to use is research shows that, right? Like there are longitudinal studies that have, that date clear back into the mid eighties that track, they weren't even looking for this thing. They they were just doing longitudinal studies within major groups, 30,000 people, 40,000 people, 50,000, 70,000 people. And what they found within the longitudinal study was people that were diagnosable with addiction issues, either by the DSM-4 or DSM-5, depending on when the study was, within the four years of the study, were no longer diagnosable with addiction. They had found their own way out of addiction without professional help to the tune of roughly 75%. And I'm like, why isn't this like at the forefront of every meeting? Like, why isn't this on AA and NA billboards? Like, hey, recovery is the norm, not the exception to the rule. It's not heresy. Like, wouldn't that be more motivational? Wouldn't that like lead more people to hope, right? Like part of addiction in my own understanding and in research is most people, especially in active addiction, have a sense of learned hopelessness. 
one of the things that as a therapist, one of the major first things is besides dropping stress is trying to help people create meaning and purpose in their life so they can create some hope. Wouldn't, hey, 75% of the people without any professional help recover all by themselves. So, hey, since I got your back, you got this. Wouldn't that create some hope? <laughs> Was my idea, <laughs> right? But when I brought this and this, this is the craziness of the human construct, right? Like people will argue to the nth degree about their issues. Because I would come into these groups, I'd come into AA meetings, NA meetings, in my own groups that I created, and, and people would come in, and I would tell them these things. And they would argue. Well, that might work for some people, but not me. Be like, no, nah, I don't think that's true. Hey, like, here's a research paper. Shows it's true. I, I don't, I still don't believe it's true, right? Like people, because of, you know, cognitive dissonance, because of programming, because we become so attached to our issues, like people would literally fight for their limitations, right? Like that's the, that's the irony in, in my opinion. I'm like, here's, here's an open door. And again, to me, that is the epitome of learned hopelessness right? Like the studies on learned hopelessness where they lock a dog into a, a cage and they shock the floor and the dog learns that no matter what it does, it can't get out. And then they open the cage so the dog could leave and they continue to shock the dog and the dog doesn't go anywhere because it's learned that no matter what it does, it's just going to get shocked. Right? So, and again, in my understanding, it's part of the issue is, is just learned hopelessness. So if that is the case, this book, which is full of hope on these are the actual things that you're up against. This is the reality of social programming. This is the reality of cognitive programming. This is the reality of biological psychology, all of which are within your control. You can facilitate change in all of these, which means that you're not stuck. You're not just out there in a, in a whim. You're not, you're not a just a boat adrift on the ocean, right? Like you actually have power to change things. You have the ability to move forward. And that's the hope of the book and the hope of any talks like this or every group that I do every time I engage with somebody is simply the empowerment of you don't have to be where you are. You don't. That was a lot of information and I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to process. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a fire hose right. of everything. Yeah. Fire hose <laughs> is a great analogy. Um, I did have a question. Sure. You mentioned earlier on that when you had transitioned from leaving that, the fitness job and you had met this lady that, that you were working with MAT. Uh -huh. So at, at this point in your story, had you already recovered or was this kind of the gateway to you finding recovery or, uh, cause it, cause you, you've mentioned that you, you weren't familiar with 12 step and you did it on your own. So mm -hmm. what, what did that look like? So, yeah, no, I had already, um, I'd already recovered in, um, and I want to stress that recovered, right? Like I don't believe in recovery as in that, like you're always going to be a, in a state of recovery. I am recovered. Um, and mine looked, uh, like, which is, uh, a lot of the aspects that I use in my own, um, therapy process, uh, is a Buddhist and stoic outlook, 
one of the times I was homeless, I was uh, reading the book, The Fifth Profession, um, while living next to the river, uh, sleeping in my blazer. And the, the gist of the story is a Navy SEAL and a samurai team up to save the day, right? And I was like, I'm like a samurai. Yeah, like that's what I, I want. I need to be a samurai, right? Like, so I started um, researching samurais and because I do what I do and I dig deep into research, I was like, okay, well, like, how do you create this unflinching motif? And, um, I was like, so what is, what do, what do samurais believe? And, um, a lot of them follow Buddhism and Taoism. So I was like, I'd heard of Buddhism. And the only thing I knew about Taoism was the little yin and yang symbol. Right. So I started researching those beliefs and like, how do those beliefs help someone become this amazing master, calm, emotional regulation, perfectionist, like all this good jazz. And one of the concepts in Taoism is there is no such thing as good and bad. Things just are, right? Like it's your perception. Um, if you have a great day, good. If you have a bad day, good, because both taught you something, right? Well, when that really hit home, all of this stuff that I carried around in life, all of my quote unquote trauma, right? Like all this stuff that was difficult and outside of my preference all went away because <laughs> it wasn't bad. It just was. And if I could pull strength from it, then it was actually a blessing. So I'm, I literally, I'm like half crying, half laughing, laying in the, in the, in the back of the blazer, laughing to myself about like all of this shame, all of this guilt, all of this anger that I was, I was carrying around about, um, how I was or how I had been treating or what I had gone through was just all my own doing. Right. And that was the Buddhist concept of attachment, right? Like I had become attached to those things and the judgment that they were wrong. Right. Like there's a, there's an entire construct that you can break down in the, when you get the Buddhist concept of holding a grudge or being angry at somebody or something is like holding on to a hot coal waiting to throw it at them. Right. Or the Taoists say that, you know, it's like drinking a poison, hoping someone else gets sick. Right. Like, so it's only happening to you. And then when you really expand that, so like the forgiveness is so you can set it down. Right. But the reality is, <laughs> is the fact that you think you need to forgive someone is judgment in and of itself and still judging that the thing was wrong, which it wasn't. So you don't even really need to forgive because nothing happened that needed forgiveness. <laughs> and when that idea clicked, I was free. My past was just that. It was just a day. It didn't matter how quote unquote bad it was. It didn't matter how difficult it was. It didn't matter how far outside of my preference it was. One, it happened. It was no longer happening. And two, whatever it did made me stronger, right? Like Nietzsche, that which does not kill you makes you stronger, right? So as soon as those constructs truly took hold, I was free. I was no longer depressed. I was no longer stressed. I was no longer angry. I no longer felt like the world owed me something and everything spun back around to everything's in my lap now. So I got no one to blame, no one to point anything at. And if I don't like where I am in life, then change it. And that is 
as I advocate to people in groups, like that is the most empowering thing you can ever do. But it is also the biggest, hardest, nastiest horse pill you will ever swallow, right? Because you're looking at your life and you're like, oh my God, how did I end up here? Because of you. <laughs> That's hard to swallow <laughs> if you're not ready to swallow it, <laughs> right? So um, that's that was my freedom. It wasn't, to my current understanding, I did in literally one evening what I try to help people do over days, weeks, or months of their life through therapy, right? Like get them to understand that, hey, if you're carrying something around, you're doing that by choice, right? Like you, guilt and regret and stuff like that is like luggage. You can set it down whenever you wish. So it was just, I was blessed truly with the epiphany of the understanding of judgment or non-judgment. There is no good and bad and it's all on me all in one night. And it changed in a moment how I saw the world spun on a dime. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I remember, I remember, uh, man, I don't even, I, I can't tell you how long ago it was now. It's probably five or six years ago where I read something about that concept of, of not labeling things as good as good and bad. Mm -hmm. And I too just had like that mind to just like, my mind exploded because I had lived in that idea of, you know, my days are the, the things that happen are good or bad. And, mm -hmm. and it, it was such a big mindset shift once I was able to like wrap my head around that idea. Cause at first it's like, it can't be that simple, mm -hmm. you know, that there's no way that I can just not judge things as good or bad. There's no way it's that easy. And it took a while for me to wrestle with that idea and get to that place of like accepting that I could live that way. And that's, that's been a big part of, of my journey is, is understanding that of the labels of good and bad or, are not, not necessary. That that doesn't, you know, and, and, and kind of like you were saying, and one of the things that I came to learn is just because there's something that happens in my life that I may label as bad doesn't mean that it's going to be bad for me. The results of that situation ultimately could lead to something good. So there's no reason for me to put these labels on things and think of things in those terms of either good or bad, like that, that real black and white kind of thinking of it's either this or it's that. A hundred percent. Right. Tony Robbins does a, uh an amazing talk about that where he's like, think about how like some of the, one of the worst things in your life actually turned out to be one of the best things that happened to you. Right. And yeah, if we can reframe it, um, I mean, most of us like uh, spinning it back to like mental health or addiction or whatever, most of us use or are mad or are angry or suffer from PTSD or whatever because of a judgment, because of some type of emotional link, negative emotional link, to something that happened to us or that we experienced or that we thought about. So just losing that charge of, yeah, that happened. Like, um, like my own sexual abuse, right? Like, yes, it happened. Yes. It was way outside of my preference. Yes. I do not want to go through that again, but on a real level, like I have been able to help thousands of other men start coming to terms and come to terms with their own abuse because I went through it. 
So how could that have been a bad thing? Right? Was it unpleasant? Was it, you know, again, outside of preferences? Was it a bad day? Yes. But like, it wasn't bad. It was difficult. It was challenging. It was painful, right? Like those are real things. And that's, again, going back to the Buddhism idea, right? Like life is pain. Suffering is optional. And the suffering is the the psychological side of pain, right? Like if I hit you in the, the hand with a hammer, like, ah, that's pain. Okay. But now you spend the next three years telling people on podcasts about this crazy dude that hits you on the hand with a hammer. That's suffering. That had nothing to do with the event. You're reliving it. You're bringing it forward. You're continuing to give it energy, right? Like, yeah, mm. just letting go of the one allows you to be free in so, so many ways. That makes, that makes so much sense. Well, Dr. Davis, we're getting towards the end of our time, but I would love if you wouldn't mind sharing with us the name of the book, where we can find your book, uh, any other ways that we can contact you, keep up with you, whether that be website, social media, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, the book itself is called The 12 Steps 2.0, Wake Up and Smell the Coffee About the Very Outdated Incurable Disease Model. That's the title. It's available on Amazon both in paperback or digital form. Um, you can find me at uh, my main website that's been up for years. It's kind of evolved over time, but it is fearlessrecovery.weebly.com. Um, it's just a blogging site, uh, but you can contact me through that site and tons of information on there. Yeah, and those would be the, the two currently the best ways to reach me. Perfect. I, I, and I appreciate you coming on today. I feel like this is the kind of episode that I'm going to have to go back and listen to like two or three <laughs> times to get everything through my thick skull. Uh, but I really do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of the things that you've learned, sharing a little bit of your story. And I'm also excited to check out the book. And I, I'm just really grateful that you came on today and shared with us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's truly a blessing and I'm, I'm glad it, uh, it was able to happen. Thank you. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your research with us. If you guys are interested in finding out more about Dr. Davis's research or his book, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes. Recovery Revolution Podcast Network.